welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Tudor, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 19, why you need to stop saying, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but... If I only had a dollar for every time I've heard someone say, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but... In the last few years of the manufactured COVID crisis, I'd be enjoying a holiday in one of the 73 countries that currently welcome travellers who haven't had an experimental COVID-19 injection. Wait, scratch that, since I'm not permitted to leave my own country, because according to Chief Medical Officer Professor Paul Kelly, the International Health Regulations, or IHR, that Australia signed on to as a member of the World Health Organization, WHO, oblige nations to restrict outbound travel during pandemics. Oddly enough, though, out of the other 195 countries who were legally bound by the IHR, only two still have outbound travel restrictions in place. Canada, a police state which jails its citizens, seizes their assets and freezes their bank accounts for participating in or supporting a peaceful and lawful protest, and the United Arab Emirates, which conducts public floggings and jails women who report that they've been raped. Well, at least Paul Kelly is in good company. Anyway, back to my point. Most doctors, scientists and even members of the general public who wish to express their concerns about the safety and efficacy of the inadequately tested, rushed-to-market, liability-free experimental COVID-19 injections without being instantly dismissed as tinfoil hat-wearing nutters slash baby killers slash granny murderers slash conspiracy theorists slash insert moronic thought-stopper of choice fall over themselves to lay out their credentials as true believers of the central dogma of the Church of Modern Medicine that vaccines are the best thing since sliced bread. Just not these vaccines. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I've had every other vaccine, including my yearly flu shot. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I've had extra ones for travel. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. All my kids are up to date with their vaccines. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I develop vaccines for a living. It's like a scientific version of Tourette's. They feel compelled to preface every critical utterance about COVID injections with their tremulous protestation of faith in the vaccine science, registered trademark, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. As I wrote back in 2017 in my article, Vaccines, Science, Undone Science and Anti-Science, the use of the term anti-vaxxer to shut down any and all discussion of vaccination is intellectually lazy and fundamentally anti-science. In that article, I quoted at length from an editorial in the BMJ by the associate editor of that venerable journal, Peter Doshi, who has been relentless in his pursuit of the truth about COVID-19 injections. See my previous articles, WHO's Plan to Vaccinate the World, COVID-19 Vaccines, Magic Bullets or Mirages, and If the COVID-19 Injections Work, Why Are More People Dying? Part 2, for summaries of Peter Doshi's fine work. Doshi's critique of the weaponization of the term anti-vaxxer is so lucid and penetrating that I'm going to quote it at length once again. Quote, 
Good journalism on this topic will require abandoning current practices of avoiding interviewing, understanding and presenting critical voices out of fear that expressing any criticism amounts to presenting a false balance that will result in health scares. It does matter if the vast majority of doctors or scientists agree on something, but medical journalists should be among the first to realise that while evidence matters, so too do the legitimate concerns of patients. And if patients have concerns, doubts or suspicions, for example about the safety of vaccines, this does not mean they are anti-vaccine. Anti-vaccine positions certainly exist in the world, but approaches that label anybody and everybody who raises questions about the right-headedness of current vaccine policies, myself included, as anti-vaccine, fail on several accounts. Firstly, they fail to accurately characterise the nature of the concern. Many parents of children with developmental disorders who question the role of vaccines had their children vaccinated. Anti-vaccination is an ideology, and people who have their children vaccinated seem unlikely candidates for the title. Secondly, they lump all vaccines together as if the decision about risks and benefits is the same, irrespective of disease, polio, pertussis, smallpox, mumps, diphtheria, hepatitis B, influenza, varicella, HPV, Japanese encephalitis, or vaccine type, live attenuated, inactivated whole cell, split virus, high dose, low dose, adjuvanted, monovalent, polyvalent, etc., this seems about as intelligent as categorising people into pro-drug and anti-drug camps, depending on whether they have ever voiced concern over the potential side effects of any drug. Thirdly, labelling people concerned about the safety of vaccines as anti-vaccine risks entrenching positions. The label, or its derogatory derivative, anti-vaxxer, is a form of attack. It stigmatises the mere act of even asking an open question about what is known and unknown about the safety of vaccines. Fourthly, the label too quickly assumes that there are two sides to every question and that the two sides are polar opposites. This you're either with us or against us thinking is unfit for medicine. Many parents who deliberate on decisions regarding their children's health ultimately make decisions such as to vaccinate or not vaccinate with lingering uncertainty about whether they were right. When given a choice, some say yes to some vaccines and no to others. These parents are not zealots. They are decision makers navigating the grey acting under conditions of uncertainty in perpetual flux. And among those uncertainties are the known and unknown side effects that each vaccine carries. Contrary to the suggestion, generally implicit, that vaccines are risk-free, and therefore why would anyone resist official recommendations, the reality is that officially sanctioned written medical information on vaccines is, just like drugs, filled with information about common, uncommon and unconfirmed but possible harms. Although MMR and autism have dominated journalistic coverage of this issue, and journalists have correctly characterised the scientific consensus that rejects any such link, just a footnote of my own to that comment, which is that Doshi failed to acknowledge that the Cochrane review of the MMR vaccine, while concluding that the scientific evidence did not support a causal link between the vaccine and autism, expressed reservations about the trustworthiness of that evidence. A quote from that Cochrane review, our certainty in the evidence for autism and febrile seizures was also moderate. End of quote. And a moderate level of evidence means that they're not supremely confident in this conclusion. Back to Doshi's editorial. Most journalists have insufficiently acknowledged the fact that bodies such as the Institute of Medicine have, quote, found convincing evidence of 14 health outcomes, including seizures, inflammation of the brain and fainting, that can be caused by certain vaccines, although these outcomes occur rarely, end of quote, within the Doshi quote. 
And for 135 other adverse events investigated, the committee concluded, quote, the evidence was inadequate to accept or reject a causal relationship, unquote, with vaccines. Medical journalists have an obligation to the truth, but journalists must also ensure that patients come first, which means a fresh approach to covering vaccines. It's time to listen seriously and respectfully to patients' concerns, not demonise them. End of quote. And that quote was from Doshi's editorial, Medical Response to Trump Requires Truth-Seeking and Respect for Patients. So did those medical journalists listen to Doshi and mend their ways? Hell no. They doubled down. And the power-mad politicians piled on too, with Michael Mad Dog Gunner, the palpably deranged Chief Minister of the Northern Territory, snatching the everyone-I-don't-like-his-Hitler ball and putting it in play on an entirely new field of his own devising. If you are anti-mandate, you are absolutely anti-vax. I don't care what your personal vaccination status is. If you support, champion, give a green light, give comfort to, support anybody who argues against the vaccine, you are an anti-vaxxer. Absolutely. Your personal vaccination status is utterly irrelevant. If you campaign against the mandate, if you campaign against people being vaccinated in vulnerable settings, teachers in classrooms, I'll be really clear, at that point in time, people were actually supporting the idea of a teacher being unvaccinated in a remote community classroom with kids who cannot be vaccinated. I reject that. I still reject it. And if you are out there in any way, shape or form campaigning against this mandate, you are absolutely anti-vax. If you say pro-persuasion, stuff it, shove it. We are absolutely going to make sure as many territories as possible are vaccinated. That is our best protection against this thing. And if you look at the Doty model that's only come out since, that says if you double dose 80 in remote communities, five and up, I think you'll see our vaccine mandate is absolutely crucial to protecting lives, particularly Aboriginal lives. And I will never back away from supporting vaccines. And anyone out there who comes for the mandate, you are anti-vax. According to the spittle-spraying Mr Gunner, if you are anti-mandate, you are absolutely anti-vax. I don't care what your personal vaccination status is. First, they came for the communists. From early on in the manufactured COVID crisis, a chorus of voices raised concerns about the interruptions to well-child visits and other medical encounters aimed at delivering the childhood vaccine schedule that were caused by the imposition of the suite of non-evidence-based control measures, collectively titled lockdown, on populations throughout the world. The WHO wrung its hands over the impact of lockdowns, noting that, quote, 23 million children missed out on basic vaccines through routine immunisation services in 2020, unquote. WHO Director General and alleged war criminal Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus augured that, quote, multiple disease outbreaks would be catastrophic for communities and health systems already battling COVID-19, making it more urgent than ever to invest in childhood vaccination and ensure every child is reached, unquote. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, wailed at the sharp decrease in doses of vaccines ordered by healthcare providers in the first quarter of 2020 and gnashed its teeth at the decline in the share of five-month-old Michigan babies who were up-to-date on vaccines from an average of roughly two-thirds to less than half during the three months in which stay-at-home orders were in place in that state. 
And you can see some graphical depictions of those steep declines in vaccine administration in the US over those months in the post accompanying this podcast episode. And researchers tore their beards over the skipping of childhood vaccination appointments by 34% of Italian parents, the 36% decline in routine childhood vaccination in Pakistan, the 37% prevalence of intentional vaccination delay in Saudi parents, and the 14.4% decline in vaccination coverage in Colombia. So what catastrophic consequences ensued from this decline in childhood vaccination? Plague, pestilence and great slimy monsters crawling from the deep? Well, not exactly. In the US, child deaths declined at precisely the same time point that older age groups suffered a sharp mortality spike. And in the post accompanying this podcast episode, you can see a series of graphs. Firstly, the total US deaths broken down by age cohort and week from February to May 2020. And you'll see in that graph that there is really no bump at all in mortality in the 15 to 24 age group or the 25 to 34 age group. A very slight mortality bump in those aged 35 to 44. And then in every age group above that, you see a steeper and steeper peak in mortality in the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. But then you'll see a chart depicting child deaths compared to previous years. And you'll note there a very striking decline in deaths in the under 18 age group that commenced in week nine of 2020, roughly late February, early March. And when that graph is further broken down by age cohort, it's clear that the mortality decline was concentrated in infants under one year of age. So, at a time when public health experts were warning that skipped childhood vaccination appointments would lead to devastating consequences, roughly 200 fewer infants were dying each week in the US. Correlation is not causation, of course, and back in June 2020, when these intriguing data trends were first brought to public attention, any connection between fewer childhood vaccinations and reduced infant mortality was purely speculative. However, scientific discovery proceeds through making observations, and some of the most fruitful observations in terms of sheer potential for hypothesis generation are natural experiments, that is, changes in environmental exposures that allow before and after comparisons of outcomes in the same population. It turns out that the entire US state of Florida took part in a natural experiment on childhood vaccination, apparently as a direct result of the sharp drop in confidence in public health advice that ensued from Florida's divergence from officially sanctioned yet unprecedented and non-science-based COVID containment policies. When Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, broke with CDC guidance and began lifting COVID-19 restrictions in September 2020, the mainstream media's collective brain exploded in incandescent rage, spewing predictions of biblical-scale carnage that are depicted in a political advertisement framing DeSantis's policies as the real-life sequel to the Purge franchise. And I really encourage you to read the YouTube comments on this piece. They are well worth the price of admission. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of your cabin crew, we'd like to inform you that we have officially entered Florida airspace. Now that we're making our final descent, please watch this short message from Governor Ron DeSantis on COVID-19. Thereafter, everyone on board will be required to comply with the state's forever purge. We are not doing any vaccine passports in the state of Florida. We trust people to make their own decisions in this state. We are not going to be bludgeoning people with restrictions and mandates and lockdowns or any of that stuff. As Governor DeSantis stated, 
while you're within state lines. You do not have to wear a mask. You do not have to get a vaccine. It is against the law for private businesses or schools to mandate masks or vaccines. And you have the absolute right to infect whoever you want, whenever and wherever with COVID-19. Thank you for traveling with us, and please enjoy your forever purge. COVID-19 is surging again. This is the time to double down. The governor is doubling down. He says students shouldn't be forced to wear masks. If you are trying to lock people down, I'm going to stand in your way. Florida just requested 300 new ventilators. Hospitals are filling up here. There is evidence that children are making up much higher cases that are emerging. The numbers continue to rise across Florida. This fall, don't breathe in. This is insane. The Forever Purge. Coming to a theater and live streaming networks near you. Just for the record, my favorite YouTube comment on that was, does DeSantis have to declare the cost of this ad as a campaign contribution? However, disappointingly for the rabid at DeSantis hashtaggers, the retirement capital of the US ranks 31st out of 51, that's 50 states plus the District of Columbia, on the all-important metric of age-adjusted COVID deaths, outperforming lockdown meccas and mainstream media paragons of exemplary COVID response. New Jersey coming in at number 14 on the COVID death count, New York at number 16, the District of Columbia at number 21, and Michigan at number 24. The gap between the apocalyptic predictions of chief COVID seer Anthony Fauci and readily observable reality seems to have prompted some healthy skepticism in Floridians toward public health nostrums, and it didn't stop with COVID. As documented by Igor Chudov on his Substack, according to Florida Health, the percentage of children aged 24 to 35 months in the state who were fully compliant with the CDC-recommended childhood vaccination schedule plummeted 14.1 percentage points from 93.4% in 2020 to 79.3% in 2021. And what happened to Florida's infant mortality rate? It dropped by 8.93%. Huh. So, no plagues of boils, hail, locust, darkness and the killing of firstborn children ensued when parents skipped their kids' jabs? No, just fewer babies dying in their first year of life. While Igor, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, Bart, Chudov, expressed shock and disbelief at his own findings and practically begged his readers to disprove him, they instead peppered him with links to further research, indicating a correlation between increased intensity of childhood vaccination and higher infant mortality rates. If this is your first foray into questioning the value of childhood vaccines, buckle up, you're in for a wild ride. So wild that even the most heroic critics of damaging COVID containment policies, such as Drs. Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Kulldorff, don't dare to go there, as my Twitter exchange with them demonstrates. This exchange began when Martin Kulldorff posted a link to an article that he co-authored with Jay Bhattacharya called How Vaccine Fanatics Fueled Vaccine Skepticism. And I replied to that tweet copying Jay Bhattacharya, have you read McKinley and McKinley's seminal paper, The Questionable Contribution of Medical Measures to the Decline of Mortality in the 20th Century? Jay Bhattacharya was polite enough to respond, saying, no, I'll take a look, thank you for the reference. 
And I reply, I would be interested in your thoughts. It's hard for me to escape the conclusion that the benefits of vaccination have been vastly oversold. Perhaps it's high time for some healthy scepticism about vaccination beyond COVID-19 shots. And that was on the 9th of March. Now I know that both Dr. Bhattacharya and, and, and Dr. Kaldorf are busy men, so I left it a few weeks before following up. And then on March the 24th, I tweeted to both of them, have you had a chance to read it? I would like to know your thoughts on it. And I still don't have a response from either of these admirable doctors who remain firmly planted in the I'm not an anti-vaxxer but camp. I guess even the most courageous people still have cognitive maps marked with the medical equivalent of here be dragons. But I live in hope. And if you're interested in that seminal paper I referred to, The Questionable Contribution of Medical Measures to the Decline of Mortality in the 20th Century, you'll find a link to it in the post accompanying this podcast episode. You really should read the entire paper, but here's the money quote. Quote, with reference to those five conditions, influenza, pneumonia, diphtheria, whooping cough and poliomyelitis, for which the decline in mortality appears substantial after the point of intervention, and on the unlikely assumption that all of this decline is attributable to the intervention, it is estimated that, at most, 3.5% of the total decline in mortality since 1900 could be ascribed to medical measures introduced for the diseases considered here, end of quote. And you should note that the interventions referred to in this quote include not just vaccines, but antibiotics and diphtheria toxoid. That piddling 3.5% of the reduction in total mortality from infectious disease is shared between an antibiotic, three vaccines and a toxoid. Far from being one of the greatest success stories in public health and one of the greatest medical achievements of modern civilization, the McKinley's careful analysis suggests that vaccines made little to no discernible contribution to the decline in deaths from measles, influenza, whooping cough and smallpox in the 20th century, while the impact on poliomyelitis deaths was small. And while the McKinleys do not mention this, the case definition of poliomyelitis was changed after the polio vaccine was introduced, leading to an artifactual drop in reported cases and deaths, which made the vaccine appear more effective than it actually was. And following is a quote from a paper called The Polio Vaccine, a critical assessment of its arcane history, efficacy and long-term health-related consequences. Quote, Prior to the introduction of the vaccine, the patient only had to exhibit paralytic symptoms for 24 hours. Laboratory confirmation and tests to determine residual paralysis were not required. The new definition required the patient to exhibit paralytic symptoms for at least 60 days, and residual paralysis had to be confirmed twice during the course of the disease. Also, after the vaccine was introduced, cases of aseptic meningitis, an infectious disease often difficult to distinguish from polio, and Coxsackie virus infections were more often reported as separate diseases from polio. But such cases were counted as polio before the vaccine was introduced. The vaccine's reported effectiveness was therefore skewed, and I've reproduced both Table 1 and Figure 5 from this paper in the post accompanying this podcast episode. In Table 1, you'll see a tabulation of the reported cases of polio and the reported cases of aseptic meningitis, both before the new polio definition was instituted and then after. And it's very plain to see that the drop in cases of polio was almost exactly matched by an increase in reported cases of aseptic meningitis. In other words, we had a straight-out substitution of diagnosis rather than a decrease in the number of conditions that were formally identified as polio. And Figure 5 shows a graphical representation of the change in cases identified as polio before and after the definition of polio was changed. 
So look, do us all a favour and quit using I'm not an anti-vaxxer but to preface your critical comments or questions about the efficacy and safety of COVID-19 vaccines. They're not an exceptional case. The entire field of vaccinology is littered with undone science and it's high time that indisputable fact was acknowledged and a serious attempt made to remedy it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.